Please stand for the reading of God's word from Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 3. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hekafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servants to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to them, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they, are, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehebtabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. So they, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulan, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. Thank you, Evan, and good morning again. Welcome, I'm Travis. 
I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you this morning as we're continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah that we've been calling uh, A Time to Rebuild. Uh, Nehemiah, as we've been seeing, is a book about the efforts to rebuild what was the ruined city of Jerusalem, broken down as part of God's own exile of his people, sending them out from the land that he had given them because it was not fitting for them to be there with the way that they were living. It was meant for them to be there as a light to the nations of what God is like, of what life with God is like. And all that was there for them to see was deception and distance between God. And so this was actually part of God's plan to let it be this way, but we're also seeing it's part of God's plan not to leave it this way, but to rebuild. And it's been some 140 years since the city was destroyed, and it was certainly a time to come back and rebuild. And as we've been saying for ourselves as well, after several years of a pandemic, after economic challenges, political challenges, cultural upheaval, things going wrong with our environment, it's certainly a time for rebuilding as a society, but not just as a society, also as CTK. We've gone through several years of transition now between our past and looking towards our future. It's time for us to rebuild as a church, as individuals, as a whole people. And so my hope is that through this series, we will see ways as we continue to move on here that we can rebuild. Hopefully you've started to see those things for yourselves. Hopefully you will continue to see more. Last time, we looked at the first internal problem that rebuilding faced. There are going to be more internal problems as we go along in the weeks ahead, but we're going to sort of pivot back here to uh, a couple of weeks ago prior when we saw the first external real significant challenge to the people of God in rebuilding. We saw how that problem actually uh, was a stream, an extreme challenge to them, a difficult thing to handle, taught us about anger, about how we respond to things that make us angry. And today we're going to see circumstances that could easily make you afraid, not just angry. There are some external challenges. Enemies are making last-ditch efforts and increasing threats to try and stop the work before it can finish. Uh, it's really a wearying series of crises, and these are difficult things to weather. Uh, it's not saying that we're going to go through things like this. Maybe you've gone through similar threats and difficulties in your own life, and I hope that you haven't. Uh, but it's to show, and I think we'll hope that we will see, that there are difficult things that we can go through and that God meets us in the midst of those, maybe in ways that we don't expect. And maybe there are options that we might not assume that we have. Uh, there's so much I'd love to get to uh, in today's passage, but we will focus on just two things. I know, shock, not three, two. We're going to focus, one, on the threats, and two, on how Nehemiah handles those things. And before we do that, would you pray with me as we enter into our time together? God, would you let us be still now? Would you help our hearts to be calm before you, at peace before you, open before you, as we talked about in the reading of your word, that we open our hearts before you now. Would you see us as we are with our flaws and our fears? Would you meet us in all the ways that we are challenged, in all the ways that we are facing difficulties right now, that we feel threats to our relationships, threats to our financial stability, threats to our, our home, 
threats to our community, threats to our past and what we've understood life to be, threats to our future, what we hope it might be, threats to our church, to ourselves as Christians, God, where our faith itself can be challenged. Would you lean in now in greater ways than I can? We know you've already been present in the lives that are here, God, that you have been working, that you are working all things for the good. Would you lean in in a more significant way now? By your grace, would you do what I cannot do, what they cannot do? Would you be God in their lives and move them beyond fear, beyond failure, beyond regret to something more in you that through you we might indeed see a greater Savior through all these things and not be let down but instead be lifted up? So would you lift up our hearts this morning? Would you do only what you can do? In your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to have your Bibles open if you have them with you. If not, there should be a hardback one in the pew in front of you, or feel free to use your Bible apps. We're going to go back through the text a little bit together this morning, as we often do. Uh, We're focusing first on the threats that are coming particularly against Nehemiah, but also against the people in connection with him. We see three kind of groups of threats in the text this morning, and really the text is organized around these three different threats. Uh, The first set of threats come from Sambalat and Geshem in verses 1 through 9. The second come through Shemaiah in verses 10 through 13, and the last come through Tobiah in verses 17 through 19. And really, Tobiah is just everywhere. He's sort of a problem at all times, Um, so he'll kind of get addressed in the midst of these things. But I want to look at just each of these series of threats and then kind of reflect on what they show us out of their kind of whole package together. But looking first at Sembalat and Geshem and the threat that they present, uh, these folks hear that the work has progressed nearly to the end. Nehemiah says all that's left to be done is actually to put the gates on and to shut the door essentially on the city. Everything else that needs to be done has been done. This is a a 95% complete work. And yet they see still an opportunity to shut things down. They recognize that, yeah, the gates aren't actually in yet. This isn't complete. There are still ways that we could try and make them stop. And so what they seem to do here at the 11th hour is offer Nehemiah a meeting under the pretense of coming to some kind of truce. If you remember back in chapter 4, if you were here with us, uh, essentially they were making repeated threats, the same group of people and even more groups of people, to basically come and kill everyone in Jerusalem that was working on this. And that chapter ended without giving us any indication that that threat had gone away. So it wouldn't be crazy to think that they were trying to offer some sort of olive branch to Nehemiah saying, we recognize you're almost done. How about we come to some mutually beneficial agreement where sure, we let you finish, but you're going to give us something out of this too. That's kind of what we could see happening through this. But Nehemiah somehow, uh, it seems maybe through God's own intervention, recognizes that this is not an offer for a truce, that this is actually a trap. And so he doesn't go for it. But they don't really stop just because Nehemiah sends his one response saying, hey, I can't actually come right now. I'm pretty busy. Uh, They turn up the heat. And after sending this same request four times, this is just an annoying group of people for Nehemiah. They're asking again and again and again. The fifth time... They send an open letter, one that wouldn't be sealed, one that anybody could read. It seems the one that they hoped that anyone and everyone would read on the way to Nehemiah so that the word would spread and this accusation, false accusation, would go out. 
They were claiming, as the text shows us, uh, that Nehemiah was leading a rebellion and trying to set himself up as a rival king to the Persian emperor. Uh, this is an extremely serious accusation and charge. Uh, if you were here with us last week, uh, when Pastor Bradley Barnes from CTK was here, he talked about what happened at the very end of the exile process. What happened when Israel was finally being taken fully even out of Jerusalem, and it was a brutal crackdown on the people that were left there because they had rebelled against what was an initial arrangement that they had agreed to with this invading country. They had gone back on that and had tried to fight again anyway. They had led a small rebellion and that was put down brutally. So rebelling against this empire, even the charge of rebelling, even the whiff of rebelling against an empire like this tended to result in a brutal response. This was not something that was taken lightly. This was not something that the government would have just said, eh, they're going to do what they're going to do. This would have potentially led to real brutality. So this is an attempt, I think we can see, and Nehemiah explains in verse 9, to scare Nehemiah and the people into giving up on rebuilding, to bailing out, to saying, it's not worth it to put in the gates because if we put in the gates, it's only going to seem that much more like we are trying to rebel, like we're going to put the walls up and hunker down and break off and have our own kingdom. It was trying to make them feel like it was just too dangerous, too costly to continue to do this work even when they were so close to the end. But again, Nehemiah seems to navigate around this. We'll talk more about how that happens in the next point, but I want to continue talking about the threats because this threat still doesn't work, so they move on. They don't really stop. This is a persistent people. They're not giving up and trying to attack this work that God is doing through them. And in uh, verse 10 and following, we see an incident with someone named uh, Shemaiah. It's not entirely clear who this person is all week long. I can't help but thinking of Shania and Shania Twain, and that doesn't feel right, and that's not helpful anymore, but that's in my brain, so I'm just glad I said it as Shemaya the first time. Uh, but this is a person that seems to be somehow prevalent in the community, connected to Nehemiah, someone that could actually get Nehemiah's attention, even though Nehemiah is overseeing all this work. Uh, Nehemiah comes to his house, and essentially, Shemaiah tries to sell Nehemiah on this vague threat of danger coming to him. He essentially says, they, whoever they are, he doesn't give names, he doesn't say when, he doesn't say who, he just says they, they are coming to kill you, they're going to come and kill you by night. And so he says, let's hide, you and me, right, let's go, I'm your friend, I'll go with you, I'll get you into the temple, let's go into the temple, close the doors, we'll be okay. I'll help you. But this too is actually a trap. And Nehemiah recognizes that Shemaiah is not being his friend, but he is someone that's actually been bought off by Sambalat and Geshem and the others. And so he doesn't give in to this scheme either. He recognizes that this is also a trap. But finally, there's Tobiah who is just kind of constantly lurking in the background. He's part of the group that bought Shemaiah. He's part of the group that's sending the letters early on. Verses 17 and 19 are meant to give us a bit of a summary of just what he was like during this whole time. It's almost like Nehemiah is saying, 
I can't even tell you what he was like every day, so I'm just going to sum it up for you and say that this person was driving me crazy. That's essentially what he's saying, that he is always trying to draw people to his side, always trying to intimidate Nehemiah, always kind of just up in his grill, trying to get in his face, bothering him, pushing him off, trying to make him afraid. He's, he's just a constant ringing in his ears, trying to wear him down little by little, day by day. So when we stand back and look at all these threats that Nehemiah is facing, first this invitation to come out to what seems like a truce that's actually a trap, this constant pressure from people to give into that, you would be feeling that pressure. After that, it's the situation where he is being invited by a friend to do something that would seem like it might save him from some imminent, vague danger that could be real. But he navigates around that. And then Tobiah this whole time is just writing letters, trying to intimidate him, trying to turn his own people against him, trying to turn influential people, that's who the nobles were, against him and against this work. This is just exhausting, right? It's tough for Nehemiah in this chapter. We don't get the sense that even though he's made all this progress, the, the passage, the chapter starts out by saying, we're almost done. You would think that is a huge thing. That's what brought Nehemiah here. That's what he was most uh, excited about, passionate about, and actually getting away from Persia back to Jerusalem, that he would be having this just immense sense of energy and fulfillment, but we just see these things cascading over and over against him. And you just don't get the sense that, that he would have felt very good, that Nehemiah is not like, whew, this is awesome. I'm so glad I did this. <laughs> this is like, this is a bit of the struggle bus for Nehemiah. And through that, I want us to see that even when we are doing things right, even when we've made a lot of progress in our own rebuilding, we're, we're seeing ourselves grow in the ways that we hope to grow. We're seeing our church grow in the ways that we hope to grow. Our city flourish in the ways that we hope it might flourish that even when all that's happening, rebuilding may not feel very good. It might not feel like a win. But having a tough go of it, having things be difficult, no matter how much progress we've made, does not mean necessarily that we're actually off track any more than these threats meant that Nehemiah was off track in doing what God had called him to do. Rather, I think what they show is just how much of an impact Nehemiah was making, how much the people around them recognized what it would change to have this people rebuild. Likewise, I want us to see that as we are facing challenges in the future to come, whatever those trials may be, even threats, whether that's personally, whether that's attacks, false accusations, that those things might just indicate how much of an impact being a legitimate Christian presence that follows Jesus, that is like Jesus, how much of an impact that might have on our place. How much that might change. The New Testament is full of that. You see that in Ephesus. There's a riot. The people sense just how much Christianity would change, and they do not like that. That didn't mean that the things that they would have changed would have been bad. It just meant they recognized the scope of what the Christian life would do in their place. More resistance might just mean greater significance. So I want to encourage us not to assume, not to be afraid that a threat or a trial means that we've done something wrong, that we need to stop, that we need to go back. Because we are supposed to expect opposition in the Christian life. 
Jesus himself said this. Uh, Margot prayed this, actually. John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say you might. He doesn't say maybe. He says will. This is a prediction. This is a promise. You will have trouble as Christians. Schemes, character attacks, false accusations, lies, threats against your life, threats against not being your friend anymore, breaking relationship with you, having your career go off the rails. These things are to be expected in the Christian life. This isn't what happens when you are off the way. This is what happens when you are on the right way. For my friends that are here that are not Christian, I just want you to hear very clearly, there is no promise in the Christian life that by becoming a Christian, things will get easier for you. They might get a lot harder. That does not mean they won't get significantly, dramatically better, but it doesn't mean that they will just get easier. These kind of things are to be expected in the Christian life even when we're going the right direction. So I want to prepare us as we rebuild to face challenges the whole way, to expect that things are going to be difficult, to expect that we're going to face personal attacks, to expect that we're going to encounter spiritual warfare and difficulties and systems that do not want the Christian life to be growing in us or in our community. But I want us to also see that threats and trials and challenges don't have the final say about what happens to you. Just because they come doesn't mean they win. Just look at these challenges. The enemies had the right idea. If they could get Nehemiah in trouble legally or publicly if they could make him fear for his own life and safety, if they could just wear him down like Tobiah was trying to do, then they could get him off the mark. If they could make him stop leading this work, then the work would stop. The people would scatter. This is not a group so far that we've seen that is all together ready to do this on their own. They are someone who needs them or who, who they need to lead uh, them through this. If they take the leader away, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It was even a biblical principle. It's a good strategy. It's a comprehensive strategy. The problem is God doesn't let it go anywhere. With God, a good plan is not enough. I want to say that again. With God, a good plan to take you down, to make you suffer, to take the gospel away from you, to break our community down, a good plan is not enough. When God says no and closes the door, there is no one, no plan, no thing that can open the door. This shows us a picture of God like one of the world's strongest men. I don't know if you've seen some of those competitions with these guys that are just massive. And they pull like a semi-truck behind them. The picture is God standing on one side of a door, holding it open, and an infant sitting there unable to move, trying to wedge it closed. 
Right? This is what God is in comparison with the threats and challenges that come against us. He is massive. He says what will happen and what will not happen. We're meant to see a God that is in control. A God, as verse 16 says, that was at work in power among them to do these things despite threats, superintending the work that he set in motion, looking after his people. So yes, I want us to see through Nehemiah that challenges may come and even may increase while things are getting better for us. But that doesn't mean that we should stop and it doesn't mean that we're on the wrong track. It may just mean that we're getting somewhere. And regardless of what they mean, God is the one that has the final word. God will say whether the door remains open or whether it closes but I want to see how this plays out in the conviction that Nehemiah uses as he handles these threats to move into our second point here. We'll look at verses 3, 8, 11, and 17 to 19 again. Nehemiah handles each of these threats differently. And we'll talk about what some of those things illustrate for us with Tobiah's attempt to just slowly wear him down in verses 17 to 19. He doesn't get sucked in. The way he handles it is by just ignoring the noise, largely. He doesn't seem to respond, verse 19, to any of Tobiah's letters. It says, Tobiah sent letters to me. I didn't send anything back. He doesn't respond to all the fuss, the influential people, those nobles were putting in his ear day after day trying to say just how great Tobiah is, how much we need him in the mix on this, how much we should be listening to him. Nehemiah doesn't seem to respond to that either. He just lets it be. He doesn't engage. He doesn't get riled up. This helps us see, I think, that even when we are stressed, and Nehemiah certainly would have been stressed at this time, when a lot of things are up in the air, some challenges, some threats can go unmet. We don't necessarily have to do anything about them. Some can't go unmet, as Nehemiah shows in verse 8. Sometimes you do have to respond in a different way, but some challenges can go unmet. You don't have to respond to everything. We can just let some things be. You don't have to be like a symbol. What happens with a symbol when you hit it? It just crashes and clangs and rings out, right? It responds to the force. What happens to a couch when you hit it? It's quiet. (laughs) It goes back to being a couch and just kind of chills out. Right? You don't have to be the symbol. You don't have to respond just because you get hit. I'm not saying that's easy, but I'm saying we actually have a choice. Nehemiah shows a choice even in the midst of threats and challenges that we can choose to respond in a particular way. The movement of nonviolence that the civil rights movement used was predicated on this very idea that you could choose how to respond when someone threatened you, when someone harmed you, when they promised to harm you, that you could choose to respond in a different way. Just because you get hit, 
in the Christian life or even physically in this life does not mean that you have to respond. You can be like the couch instead of the symbol. And that's what Nehemiah is like in verse 3. He doesn't let himself get wound up by their incessant asking. Four times they're asking, can you come and meet us? Can you come and meet us? Can you come and meet us? I don't know if there are any parents in the house, but how many times when your kids just keep asking and asking and asking, do you feel like, I am just full of grace and mercy, and I will respond with peace and calm. No, you're just, your fever rises a little bit. Despite that, I think what the passage is trying to show us, God giving him a grace that he wouldn't normally have in this moment to be able to choose how to respond. He doesn't make a power play and say, I know what you're doing and I'm not going to do it. He just says, I can't come right now. He lets it be minimally answered and he stays calm. He only escalates when they escalate. He only responds even still in a way that has an option. They say, let's come and talk. Come, you need to talk to us if you want this rumor to die, essentially. And Nehemiah just says, you're making a lie up and I'm not coming. He doesn't just do what they want him to do. He has a choice and responds. This helps us see we have options when we face challenges. We can consider what seems wise, knowing that God is the one who opens the door and God is the one who closes the door. That's the conviction that Nehemiah has to be able to do that kind of action, to be able to say, I'm not coming and I'm not getting riled up. I just want to ask for a minute, do you live like that? I don't live like that a lot of the time. Are we anxious and reactive? Are we more like a symbol? Do we, do we live? Do we interact? Do we work in a way where we feel like I have to respond to whatever comes up? Are you constantly running around to meet every threat and difficulty, every perceived threat and difficulty, every potential thing that could go wrong, everything that you just wish you had said slightly different in that email? Am I doing that? Am I doing that at work? Am I doing that at school? Always responding to what someone else might think of me? Am I doing that at home with my family, with my roommates? Am I doing that, dare I say, on social media? Am I just reacting? What would life be like for you if you lived more like Nehemiah and didn't have to respond to everything that you felt like was a threat? Because you believe that God is at work and he will have the final say. What would that be like for you? Just breathe that in for a minute. Let your shoulders relax for a second. Maybe rebuilding for your life looks like letting some challenges go unmet in a day-to-day -day way. Or maybe it looks like accepting a challenge you can't control because Nehemiah doesn't just respond in a measured way. 
Sometimes he lets himself be increasingly threatened and accepts a lack of control. We see that through the threat of Shemaiah. Shemaiah tries to get Nehemiah to fear for his life. This is a plain and simple threat. Trying to make him afraid that someone's going to come kill him and to think about himself at all costs, to, to try and control an uncertain possibility with some very certain concrete actions. But Nehemiah doesn't become captive to fear just because this person says, run. Instead, he chooses to accept a possibility that he cannot control and let his life be at risk for the sake of seeing the work to the end. He recognizes in verse 11 that it would not be right, it would actually be a sin for him to do this, to run and hide. For one, it would be sin because it would be breaking God's law. To hide in the sanctuary would be to, breaking God's, to break God's law for him because only the priests were supposed to go into the sanctuary at that time. Anyone else was not allowed to go in. It would have been a presumption on Nehemiah's part that he, a man not supposed to be there, could just walk into the presence of the divine and live. You didn't do that with the king in that time. You certainly didn't do that with the king of kings. He's trying to get him to break God's law to take care of himself. And Nehemiah is not going to do that. He also recognizes it would be wrong because it would mean becoming self-absorbed, turning away from the work like that, when the very reason that he came to Jerusalem, the reason that he was here getting threatened in the first place was because, as we said in the very first week, he had made their problems his problem. To now only think about himself is to forget their problems entirely, to be doing the thing he came to do and to stop doing it. It's trying to confuse him, to take him off of his purposes, to make him lose sight of the vision and the goal. It would mean abandoning them to save his own skin. Possibly. It's not even sure if this threat is real. Now, Nehemiah chooses to accept a personal risk rather than let them go, rather than let this vision go. He prays, of course, that it would not happen, verse 14. Of course you pray that it would not happen. It's very normal. He's not just saying, I'm okay, I'm so fine. Right? He, he talks to God. He vents the problem out to God. We talked about the importance of letting your anger and your frustration go back to God, but he accepts an uncertainty that he cannot control. He keeps his heart set on the people, on the city, even if maybe he wouldn't see the work come to a finish. They meant more to him than simply staying alive. He has kept this, we can see in this moment, he has kept this about them, about this vision, about this possibility. If his life has to be lost to keep the rebuilding going, then it will be lost. He has committed himself to something greater than himself. That's, that's not really a common thing that we do right now. If anything, our social mantra is do whatever makes the greatest you possible. From the smallest things that we do to the largest things we do. Amazon is based entirely almost on making the greatest you possible come to your door. No offense to Amazon. I know we have some employees in here. I use Amazon. 
but just giving examples, right? This is not something that happens in our culture, that you give up yourself for something greater. But in that, he is finding a life that he wouldn't have if he prioritized self-preservation at any cost. If he tried to put down the threat rather than simply accept it. This is what happens when the gospel gets into your life. It lets you find more of life even as you lose more of yourself. This is what Jesus himself said. If you gain the whole world but give up your soul, what have you gained? That if you deny yourself and come after me, take up your cross and come after me, you will actually find more life. That it's in the squeezing of life, the trying to desperately hold on, that we lose life and it increasingly slips through our fingers. The gospel gives you something beyond you. That's the hope, not the greatest you, but something beyond you. I want to get beyond the threshold. God doesn't want to just build out the house. He wants to move beyond that to something greater, to draw you up into something that is not just you, but to draw you into something deeper, wider, eternal, cosmic, into him. And that's the paradigm and the reality of Jesus himself. Because Jesus didn't think that his life needed to be preserved at all costs, before everyone else, before any other work. He saw the work of rebuilding you and I, drawing us out of the ruins of our sin and brokenness as needing to be finished at all costs, even if it cost him his life. He saw that as a work that he couldn't give up on, as a work worth bleeding for, worth being threatened and falsely accused for, worth being hated for, worth dying for. Even though he was likewise tempted as Nehemiah was tempted by Shemaiah, Jesus was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane to give it all up, to save his own skin. To just think about himself, about the pain that he would face to do this, about what it would require of him to buy you and I back from sin and death, what it would take to leave himself open to this kind of attack and brutality, to let go of power and control. He was tempted in that way. And he ultimately thought more about us than about himself. We were the ones he was thinking of when they beat him. We were the ones he was thinking of when they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. We were the ones he was thinking of when they spit at him and mocked him and shamed him while he was dying naked on a cross in front of the whole city. We were the ones he was thinking of when he closed his eyes in death. And we were the ones he was thinking of when he opened them in the resurrection. He could have saved himself, but instead he was thinking of you.
That's what gives you and I the strength for life's challenges and threats. His accepting a loss of control. Jesus keeping his eyes on you. When he could have just saved himself, his love for you poured out on the cross, making your problems his problems, raising you up from the ashes of sin and death, which he didn't have to do, but he so wanted to do, so that death would no longer be the threat that it is to us. That's what gives us life. That's what sets you free to face life's threats and challenges, even when they continue and get worse, as they do in chapter 7, verse 3. We say that the work is done. They have put the gets in. They finish all this. They do it in an amazing time. And even then, there are still more threats. They have to keep guards on all the time. They can't have the gates open past certain hours. Even after amazing things have happened, the city walls were repaired in 52 days Threats are still there. What they thought would be the end was not the end. And when you meet that moment when what you thought might be the end is not the end, what keeps you going, gives you life and energy is a Jesus who loves you more than he loved his own life. A Jesus who pushes you past that death moment when everything unwinds and you don't have anything more left because everything unwound for him and he didn't have anything left and yet he got up from the grave and we will get up from the grave with him and in every single conceivable spiritual way you are already resurrected if you believe in him now. That resurrection life is alive in you, is what will raise you up bodily one day with him. This is what keeps you going when you have reached that point, when you have said, this must be the end. Jesus says, that's not the end. That's chapter one. And I'm going to bring you to chapter two. He is what gives us the energy to rebuild. He is what our rebuilding is about. He is what Nehemiah's rebuilding was about, a people being with God. That's what rebuilding Jerusalem was about, the opportunity for people to be with God. Is God going to be at the center of our rebuilding, CTK? Or will it be something else? Will it be effectiveness? Will it be a certain ministry? Will it be doing things a certain way? Will God be at the center or will something else get in the way? Are we rebuilding our lives on him? What other foundation could hold you up like this foundation? What other foundation will give itself up for you to hold you up like Jesus? What other foundation could ever hold the totality of your life in its hands and not let you fall? What other foundation doesn't need you to hold on to it? There is none. You're not going to find one. He is what you need for rebuilding even amidst threats and challenges because he is your rebuilding. In light of that good news, I want to invite you to do two things as we close to practically try and anchor this in your hearts a little more this week. I want you to let and look. I want you to let a challenge, a perceived threat, just start small, a simple one. Parents, maybe that's from your kids melting down. Kids, maybe that's from your parents not being patient with you. Uh, Workers, maybe that's from someone sending you an email at 6 p.m. on Friday. 
Let a challenge, a perceived threat, a small one, go unmet this week. Give yourself space to consider whether you might just let it go. Whether all you have to say is, thank you, or can't come right now. What would it look like this week to step into that freedom a little bit, knowing that God is the one who opens the door and closes the door? What would that freedom give you to just say, I don't have to meet this right now? Second, look. I want you to look at Jesus amidst your trials this week and in the weeks to come. See Jesus on the cross wanting to save you more than wanting to save himself. Look at him while you're being threatened. Look at him when you are being rejected. Look at him while you are alone and lonely. Look at him while you are tired and frustrated and angry and sad. Look at him when you are facing accusations and threats and see him on the cross wanting to save you more than wanting to save himself. When your life is falling apart, when you don't have control this week, when you are in a minute, when everything feels like it's spiraling and coming undone, look at Jesus at the cross, on the cross, wanting to save you more than wanting to have control. When you have sinned and walked away from him this week, when you've turned away from him in your hearts, look at Jesus on the cross, dying to save you in your sins rather than let you go. Look at him and see someone who is always looking for you. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment to respond in prayer to these things. I'll give you a couple suggestions, and then I'll close us. To think about thanking God for having that final word over our trials, for him to be the one who decides. Confess the ways that maybe we have cared more about ourselves, that God isn't the center of my life and my rebuilding And just ask him to to give you a new heart that really does make other people's problems your problems, that cares in that way. Let's pray. God, we are all a mess, whether we recognize that fully or not. Would you meet us in that? Would you rebuild us in all the ways that we're ruined? Would you help us this week? You know what it's like, Jesus, to be human, to feel threat, to face it. Would you be that something more that brings us outside of ourselves to find you? In your name we pray, amen.